Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we're excited to be joined by no one because this is the news. Derek, why don't we just get into it and tell us what's been happening with Israel Palestine? If people haven't listened yet, please check out our specials on the issue. Uh, and otherwise, uh, we'll let you uh, know. Yes. So uh, there's been a little bit more violence in the West Bank since uh, this weekend. And obviously, the uh, shootings in Hawara, which was followed by the settler onslaught or pogrom uh, in that town on Sunday evening. Um, one, uh, it turns out U.S. national was killed near the city of Jericho, the West Bank city of Jericho, by Palestinian gunmen uh, on Monday. Uh, actually, was shot on Monday. I think uh, he, he died of his wounds later than that. Uh, the Israeli uh, military, the Israeli occupation forces, erected essentially a blockade on Jericho uh, in the wake of that shooting, restricting movement in and out uh, as they were uh, looking for the shooter. They did find, apparently, or they found their suspect, at least on Wednesday, uh, they undertook a raid in a refugee camp in Jericho, killed one person, arrested three others. The person they killed was apparently the prime suspect in the shooting. So they have lifted uh, the blockade, um, Elsewhere, uh, there was also a shooting incident on Thursday in Kalkia, Kalkilia, uh, which is in the northern West Bank. Uh, Israeli forces uh, somehow got into a confrontation with Palestinians. They claimed that the, the Palestinians were throwing rocks at them. Um, you know, it's always, uh, they're always defending themselves. It's never a provocation. Uh, anyway, the Israelis opened fire with live ammunition as one, obviously, is, you know, the sensible response to rocks. Uh, and killed a Palestinian teenager, wounded another uh, in that incident. That just happened uh, Thursday, so I haven't seen any fallout from that. Um, the situation in Hawara has remained calm, relatively speaking. Uh, I think residents are still trying to pick through the rubble and uh, figure out exactly how much damage was done. The Israelis, um, you know, if people listened to uh, the programming that we had earlier this week, you know, one of the uh, shocking developments was that the Israelis had arrested no one in connection with that pogrom. They have now arrested five people, which uh, is not much. There were hundreds of settlers involved in that rampage. Uh, so five is not exactly a high percentage of uh, the, the perpetrators. Uh, but I, I suppose it is better than none. They're, they're saying they may make more arrests uh, in uh, you know down the road here, but the Palestinian Authority has been very critical, uh, certainly of the response uh, to Hawara, both in the moment where uh, you know it was clear that Israeli security forces either allowed it to happen or were unprepared, even though there was uh, advance warning that it was going to happen, were unprepared to do anything about it. Uh, more likely, allowed it to happen, uh, and uh, you know since then, uh, again they they detained a few people, released most of them. And, and have only arrested this uh, small handful. So has the Israeli government said anything in particular, or is this more of a continuation of what's been going on? Yeah, there's no, I mean, there's been comments from some of the more radical members of the, the government. I mean, Betsy Smotrich, the finance minister, 
a lovely guy said that he thinks Hawar should just be destroyed, basically. It should be wiped out on TV. And that was condemned, actually. Uh, that was enough to, to draw a rebuke from the U.S. government, which is rare enough, I guess, uh, although it doesn't really mean anything. But other than that, no, there's been no real change in, in tone or response or anything. It seems like business as usual. So let's move on to Yemen and what's been going on there in terms of commercial shipping. Yes, this is actually uh, potentially a positive development. I know we don't do a lot of positive uh, stuff on this program, but a commercial cargo ship, just a generic commercial cargo ship, docked at the port of Hudaydah, which is the largest port city in Yemen and certainly the um, only major port city in the northern part of Yemen uh, where the uh, the Houthi rebels are, are in control on Saturday. So th- this is, you know, seems like a fairly mundane thing, a cargo ship docked at a port. Okay, but this hasn't happened uh, since 2016. Uh, since that time, to the extent that any cargo has been able to get through the Saudi blockade backed by the U.S., uh, there's been a UN screening process in place that's limited uh, the cargo that was allowed into basic necessities, food, medicine, fuel, uh, etc. So uh, this is something new and it's potentially, you know, could be an important uh, element of maybe a restoration of the ceasefire that was allowed to lapse in October. Uh, one of the complaints at that time that the Houthis had was that that the Saudis were not living up to their end of the bargain in terms of allowing goods into northern Yemen. So this could be a step forward. It's um, it's it's a kind of out of the blue, uh, but uh, if it's the first of more of these kinds of shipments, it uh, could be a positive element. Friend of the show, uh, Anel Shiline, did a piece uh, arguing that uh, recently, just a few days before this this happened, arguing that uh, these restrictions on shipping and on commercial uh, imports, uh, as well as humanitarian imports, were were threatening uh, basically any chance at at uh, peace talks or at restoring the ceasefires. So, uh, you know, potentially good timing for something like this to happen. But who knows? We'll we'll have to wait and see. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about what's going on in Tunisia, and let's start with the mistreatment of asylum seekers that's been going on there. So there have been a number of reports over the past week, maybe a little over a week at this point, uh, of mistreatment of sub-Saharan Africans in particular uh, by Tunisian law enforcement, Tunisian uh, authorities. Um, A lot of this stems from comments that uh, the president of Tunisia slash dictator of Tunisia at this point, Kais Saeed, uh, uttered or offered uh, earlier this month when he kind of opined that the influx of sub-Saharan Africans who who wind up in Tunisia often uh, in transit because they're hoping to you know hop a rickety boat, get people you know find a, a trafficker or a you know smuggler or whatever, and and uh, get to Europe. Uh, Tunisia happens to be a convenient place to do that. Uh, he opined that this influx uh, of sub-Saharan Africans, in particular, was part of an a, a coordinated plan by his political opponents, by nefarious, unspecified foreign enemies to change the demographic makeup of Tunisia, something that would not be uncommon to hear from a far-right politician in Europe or in the United States. Uh, It's the same rhetoric, and Saeed is really, you know, it's sort of been a mask-off moment uh, for somebody who, despite having uh, prorogued the parliament and stripped it of much of its powers and assumed most... Uh, authority into his own person in a very dictatorial fashion over the last year plus 
had maintained that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't one of those guys. He wasn't an authoritarian. He was uh, trying to save, in fact, Tunisian democracy. Uh, this has been kind of a mask off thing because he's really turning to the same kind of xenophobic, uh, racist rhetoric that, uh, you know, authoritarians of, of all stripes wind up turning to. Uh, there was also a, a, a report in World Politics Review uh, about uh, some of the arrests. I believe we talked about this maybe a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the spate of arrests uh, of political opponents in Tunisia that uh, Said has been uh, kind of responsible for. A number of those opponents have been arrested basically just for criticizing Saeed. So there's there's nothing else to it. There's nothing else that they've done. They've just offered some public criticism of Saeed. He's, he's labeled these people terrorists, which opens up a whole raft of potential crimes that they could be charged with very serious uh, in nature. So yeah, really, uh, you know, a lot, just a lot of stuff going on here that's kind of uh, making it plain exactly what Saeed is up to and what his project is. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move over to Nigeria and what's been going on with the election there. Yes. So Saturday uh, was the Nigerian general election. Obviously, the big uh, race that everybody was watching was the presidential election. Uh, I say Saturday. That was the scheduled date. Um, a, a chunk of a number of states actually had to uh, stretch the voting into Sunday due to what appear to have been severe logistical breakdowns, essentially, um, you know, ballots. Uh, missing or just basically uh, breakdowns in the system. So they had to extend the vote into Sunday. Um, that, that's become, that'll become relevant in a moment. Um, the vote count then proceeded very slowly, uh, relatively slowly for uh, Nigeria, which usually gets these things done uh, fairly quickly, but it proceeded over the next several days uh, until on uh, Wednesday, uh, the Independent National Electoral Commission of Nigeria announced that Bola Tinubu, uh, the candidate of the ruling All Progressives Congress Party, had won. Uh, Tinubu's previous uh, highest profile political job was governor of Lagos State, but he's been instrumental and in, he was instrumental in the formation of the All Progressives Congress Party in 2013 and has been kind of the behind the scenes uh, leader of the party while it's uh, Muhammadu Buhari, the president, the incumbent president, uh, who is, uh, a, you know, from, from APC, uh, has been running the country. So uh, he's kind of a political operator. He's, he's well known for that. Uh, th the result is being challenged by, well, it was initially, I haven't seen too much uh, from him, but it was initially challenged by both of the, the runners up, let's say, the progressive. Uh, or the the People's Democratic Party candidate Atiku Abubakar, uh, who finished second, and Peter Obi uh, of the Labour Party, both of them claimed that their own uh, internal party polling, or you know, kind of the the reports they were getting from polling stations, suggested that they had won. They raised a fuss about these delays, uh, potentially uh, the delays in the voting, potentially signifying that some there were some shenanigans going on. Uh, the length of the count, they've cited that as well uh, in terms of, you know, questioning the, the legitimacy of the election. Uh, there are a number of parties. I don't think the People's Demo uh, Democratic Party is one of them, uh, but Obi certainly in the Labor Party, as well as uh, a handful of other smaller opposition parties, have suggested that they're going to challenge the outcome of this vote in court 
that's a that's a very high bar to reach, uh, you know, obviously. And and no Nigerian election, to my knowledge, uh, has ever been overturned uh, in this fashion. So their chances of actually getting it overturned are fairly slim, I would say. Um, Obi had been uh, the favorite, I think, for a lot of Nigeria watchers. He's, he was popular with uh, young people, especially, seemed to have mo- more energy than the other two candidates. So there was uh, a lot of kind of, you know, thinking that went into uh, predicting that he would win. Alex Thurston, who will be on, I think, in a couple of weeks to talk about the election, suggests he wrote a piece for for me at Foreign Exchanges and and uh, kind of cast through cold water and then suggested that Tunubu as the the candidate of the ruling party would have a an easier time winning, and that turns out to have been the case. Again, the the court challenge is unlikely to go anywhere, and and I think probably. Uh, this is a good sign. There hasn't been any unrest. Uh, you know, you would the thing you would be worried about is, you know, is there violence in the streets? Are are Obi's supporters or uh, Abu Bakr's supporters going out and and you know uh, protesting or anything like that? It's been it seems to have been pretty quiet from from my understanding. So uh, I don't think there's a, a big groundswell of people crying foul or anything like that that would would suggest uh, instability moving forward. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's move over to Europe and talk a bit about uh, Sweden and Finland's uh, accession into NATO. And this is obviously of grave importance to us at American Prestige because we've always done pretty well on the Finnish podcast charts. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> strangely enough, strangely enough. So, thank you, uh, Finland. And uh, one thing, uh, Derek, yeah, I also we love I'm, Finland. I, I also am curious about is that the U.S. has staked a lot on this. So, uh, could you maybe update us about? What's going on and how has the U.S. responded to this? Because for, for, since the beginning, Blinken has been going around talking about, you know, NATO is now stronger, et cetera. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So uh, as people are, are presumably aware, Sweden and Finland uh, have applied to join NATO. They've done so as a package. Uh, they're already pretty tightly integrated in terms of defense policy. And uh, you, their their argument has been that they have to go in together, or else it's it's going to be to the detriment of their national security if if one were to go in ahead of the other one. Well, uh, funny what <laughs> what a difference a few months will make. Uh, now there is a new meeting scheduled. Uh, as people uh, also are undoubtedly aware, the bid their bids have been held up by Turkey. Primarily, the Turkish government is uh, in particular uh, has a lot of grievances with Sweden over Sweden's. Uh, you know, kind of uh, stance on the Kurdistan Workers Party, on the Fethullah Gulen organization. Uh, so Turkey has a lot of grievances with Sweden that they've they've sort of presented in, in list form, and they're not particularly happy with how that's been received or how the Swedish government has responded. Uh, so they are they have suggested they started the ball rolling on this that uh, Sweden and Finland uh, might not be able to go in together. In fact, that the Turks were prepared to approve. Finland's bid, but they were not prepared to approve Sweden's. Uh, now, there is supposed to be a new meeting between the three countries, representatives of the three countries in Brussels on March 9th. Uh, so that would be one week from today uh, as we're recording this. Uh, so, you know, it's possible they may make some progress there. Who knows? Uh, but I will say that the Finnish parliament voted on Wednesday to give final approval to joining NATO, which is a formality. It's not, it's just a procedural vote. It doesn't mean anything. But the fact that the Finns did it now while while Sweden's bid is is sort of uh, treading water or you know maybe floundering a little bit foundering a little bit uh, is the first real indication I think that Finland is prepared to enter NATO by itself uh, if it comes to that uh, 
the Swedish government is still kind of throwing things at the Turks, like they've got a new law that would criminalize participation in terrorist organizations. I don't know how they're defining terrorist organizations, but they're hoping that that will, you know, get get the Turks uh, on their side. But um, it, it's starting to look like the path is open for Finland to enter, enter NATO uh, without Sweden, and then Sweden, who knows what will happen uh, moving forward. The U.S., the Biden administration... Only just, I only just saw this uh, a few minutes before we started recording, uh, has apparently said, uh, we don't really care how this happens. We want both countries in. And this has been the line from NATO as well. That we want both countries in, but it's not necessary to us that they go in together. So, you know, they're, they seem prepared to accept Finland going in. Uh, by itself. Now, I will say there, the one other Is that related complication to, be, uh, to their listening to American prestige? I probably, I mean, I would assume so, uh, because they're, they're, they're good boys and girls and, and they're listening to American prestige and they should be rewarded for that. Um, I will say that the, the one, uh, potential remaining complication here is Hungary, which also has not yet, uh, along with Turkey has not yet approved either country's bid, uh, for NATO membership. It is, the thing is, it's not clear why the hung, Hungarian government has said it supports them. Uh, you know, it's, it's the, the ruling party, the Fidesz party has said we support, uh, Sweden and Finland getting into NATO. So it's not clear why this hasn't happened yet. Now, there have been some individual, uh, members of Fidesz who have said, uh, they feel like they've been insulted on some level by Swedish politicians or Finnish politicians kind of criticizing Hungary, uh, for this, that, or the other thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of nebulous and, and really, um, it, it, that doesn't hold a lot of water. I mean, if Viktor Orban, you know, he has so much control over that country and certainly over his own party at this point that, uh, you know, if he wanted this to, to be done, it would probably be done by now. So I'm not entirely clear what they're holding out for. Now, they did say, uh, they did start debating apparently on Wednesday, uh, ahead of a vote, uh, eventually in parliament, but then on Thursday, uh, they announced that they were delaying the, uh, the vote even further. So it might be, uh, pushed back until March 20th or even further, uh, at this point. Uh, so I, again, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what's going on there, but there's something, something fishy, uh, happening. And that could be in addition to Turkey, that could be another spoiler here. Thanks, Derek. Let's talk about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, yes. So there was a couple things that happened this week uh, in Russia. Uh, late Monday, uh, a number of Ukrainian drones apparently penetrated Russian airspace. At least one of them came somewhere around a hundred within a, somewhere around hundred kilometers of Moscow. Uh, there was a temporary closure at Pulkova Airport in Saint Petersburg that may have been caused by drones, although the Russian military offered a different explanation for it. Um, there was no damage, no uh, serious material damage or, you know, certainly any casualties as a result of this. But, um, you know, it's somewhat uh, interesting that they were able to penetrate uh, Russian air defenses uh, in this fashion. Now, on Thursday, uh, and I, I still haven't entirely digested this uh, story, so uh, bear with me, but uh, the Russians are accusing uh, the... Ukrainians have undertaking some kind of sabotage, or they call it a terrorist attack, uh, in the Bryansk region uh, of Russia, which is, which borders Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians uh, have kind of played this both ways. I think they, they've they've 
you know, accused the Russians of, of overstating what happened, but they also have uh, suggested that there was some kind of uh, attack carried out by Russian partisans who may be friendly to Ukraine or opposed to Putin or something. Uh, again, I'm not entirely sure that there was something, it, it looks like they opened fire on uh, some cars. Uh, the details here are not uh, uh, fully clear to me, but one, uh, two people, sorry, two people were killed uh, and one uh, child, it sounds like, was wounded, at least according to the Russians. Um, so clearly it seems like something must have happened, but uh, I think the Ukrainians are trying to say it wasn't us, it was just somebody who's sort of sympathetic uh, to us. Uh, so I, you know, make of that what you will. Uh, inside Ukraine, most of the, the focus this week has been on Bakhmut uh, with the arrival of spring and apparently uh, March 1st in Ukraine is uh, considered spring. I, I didn't know this, but uh, that was reported uh, on Wednesday. Um, the, the Ukrainians are made a big deal. A lot of Ukrainian officials made a big deal of saying they survived the winter under Russian uh, terror, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it does sound like the weather is turning. It's gotten warmer, uh, more quickly than more or earlier than usual, uh, in that part of the, the world, uh, warm weather in Ukraine after the winter, uh, means mud. It means a lot of mud, uh, rainy season, which means it's very difficult to maneuver, especially if you're on say a, a very large, very heavy vehicle that runs on tracks, like say a tank. Um, so it's possible that this could, uh, impact this offensive that the Russians, uh, have been, uh, pushing toward Bakhmut. It could make maneuvering, uh, much more difficult. That said, uh, the Russians have at this point surrounded Bakhmut on three sides. Uh, they haven't quite surrounded, encircled it entirely, but they've got it, uh, on three sides. Uh, very, it's a very precarious situation. The Ukrainians have been talking about potentially withdrawing. Uh, they've also sent reinforcements into Bakhmut, although those reinforcements may be there to uh, cover a withdrawal. Uh, just Thursday, the uh, head of the Wagner Group, the mercenary firm, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, apparently posted uh, on, I don't know if it's on his website or social media or something, a video uh, purporting to show Wagner Group fighters inside Bakhmut, which would be obviously a significant development. So um, this is still the the center of the fighting. And I, I think even with the change in weather and the, the challenges that that poses, probably only a matter of time before the Russians uh, do have this city. And, and the question is how much how much more, you know, kind of materiel and manpower uh, are the Ukrainians prepared to lose in in what probably is not going to be a successful defense? Thanks, Derek. And let's conclude with the deal that the UK and EU made with regards to Northern Ireland. Yes, so this is a tentative deal on something that has been a uh, thorn in the side of British politics, basically, since Brexit. Uh, the status of Northern Ireland, uh, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and the uh, president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, met on Monday, uh, emerged. This has been talked about for a couple of weeks now with a new agreement uh, on Northern Ireland's status. Uh, it would create basically a two-tiered customs regime for goods that are uh, coming into Northern Ireland from other parts of the UK, uh, one tier for goods that are stopping in Northern Ireland that are destined 
for Northern Ireland and another tier for goods that uh, would be bound for the European Union. Uh, one of the big complaints uh, or challenges that has emerged uh, since Brexit, which effectively left Northern Ireland in the EU single market, uh, has been that it's forced the, the erection of a tariff barrier, customs barrier, uh, between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. This has been a, a major uh, irritant to uh, pro-union parties uh, in Ulster, the Democratic Unionist Party being the largest of them. Uh, the DUP withdrew from Northern Ireland's power-sharing agreement in February of last year over this issue uh, and brought basically that that agreement, uh, left that agreement in tatters and, and has... Uh, you know, raised all sorts of concerns about a return to the troubles or at least a return to sort of political chaos uh, in Northern Ireland and, and to home rule, et cetera, et cetera. So that gave, uh, I think, some new impetus for the UK uh, and the EU to to get back together and try to finally, to try to hash out a different uh, arrangement. So this one would remove the tariff barrier for goods that are just going to Northern Ireland in theory. I mean, it's, I, you know, I don't know how it would work in practice, uh, but that's the theory. Uh, it also uh, gives the UK some power to veto uh, changes in the EU single market rules that would otherwise apply to Northern Ireland. It allows the parties in the Northern Ireland Assembly to request uh, such a veto. Um, and, but it, but it, it does leave the European Court of Justice in place as the final arbiter of Northern Ireland's compliance with the EU rules. Now, that that last thing may be a a, a big sticking point for the DUP. Uh, certainly, this veto, I, I think, you know, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny of the details of that to see whether it's enough to uh, to satisfy the DUP. So nothing is is finalized here. If the goal is an agreement that would uh, satisfy all the parties in Northern Ireland and and end that political impasse, uh, this is not yet. They're not quite there yet. It's it's going to take some time for. Uh, the parties to review things and and see what's what. But uh, it is some progress on, again, something that's been a real uh, sticking point for, for the uh, UK and for the EU uh, since Brexit. Derek, thank you so much for bringing us the news. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.